can be seated. You're probably thinking if you're visiting here with us today, what a weird passage for Easter. But it actually fits, and which is why we've decided to go through with it. Because, um, you know, if you've been here with us at Mars Hill, then you know we've been teaching through the book of Exodus from the very beginning, verse by verse. And this is where we find ourselves this week. And as we looked at it, we were like, it fits. It fits perfectly with what Easter is all about. So for the rest of you, we invite you to join in with this journey that we've been on for a while going through the book of Exodus. One thing that you realize here in this chapter, chapter 24, we're only a few chapters away from where God gave the 10 words. What you find after that, immediately he tells them how to build an altar. So he gives them the 10 words like, this is what I expect of you. And by the way, you're going to need an altar because you're not going to meet these expectations and you're going to need a, need a way to be made right so that you can come into my presence and so you can worship me. And then after that, there is like this delineation of the law. So it continues to expound upon what it means to not murder and to not commit adultery and to not lie and to not steal. So he gives like these illustrations of what that would look like in real life. And they weren't meant to be exhaustive, more illustrative in the sense that, hey, take this idea, take this, this story, and you can apply it in a whole bunch of different ways. And then we find ourselves now coming to the point where it goes back into the narrative a bit. So we're finding out what's still happening there at Mount Sinai. So remember, even though we're in chapter 24, there's not a lot that has happened from chapter 20 to chapter 24 in the sense of activity. They're still at the mountain. They've just heard the word of God spoken to them. And now there is this very interesting scenario that takes place where God is inviting some to come up the mountain. Now, why is that a stark contrast from what we've seen before? Because remember, when the word of the Lord went out and they heard the 10 words, God said, don't let anyone come near the mountain. Don't let them pass this place. If they do, they're going to die. Now, all of a sudden, there's an invitation to come up and to be with God, although there are limitations to it. So one thing I want to point out is that meals are central to the biblical experience. Now, if I were to ask you right now, I want you to envision God. I want you to envision your idea of what God looks like and, and what he's doing right now. I don't know what would come up in your mind, but I would almost guarantee you that the majority of the people here, none of you have him eating. None of you have him sitting around a table with food across the table. Here's what's weird. I don't know how you can come up with anything but that if you've read the scripture. Because over and over and over again, all he talks about is feasting and food and come together. The whole thing starts with him planting a garden and telling them what they can eat and what they can't eat. The whole Bible ends with this marriage feast of the lamb where they all come together and there's more food than anybody could ever eat. And everywhere in between, it is this picture of God inviting man to come and eat and to feast. Our God is a God of feasting. I mean, you think about it, Jesus gave us a supper to remember him by. Hey, as often as you do this, remember me. And he wasn't just talking to the Baptists who would be like, they would remember him a whole lot because they're always eating, right? I mean, the Baptist churches, they build the fellowship hall before they build the sanctuary. I mean, it's kind of the way the whole thing goes. Food is central to our human experience because food is so central to our life. And it makes sense that it's central to the biblical experience. It's central to our relationship with with God. It's central to how we understand him. Matter of fact, let me just give you some examples. I told you that God planted a garden. Did you know that God 
Immediately when Noah gets off of the ark, there is also a eating and a feasting. God does the same thing with Abraham. He does the same thing with Jacob. He invites Israel in Leviticus 23 to have seven feasts, the majority of them, all with the exception of one, which is a 24-hour fast. All the rest of them have eating and feasting involved with them, and they're to do it every single year. God invites Moses to a feast. God invites us to a feast through the Lord's Supper. And it, at the end, like I said, when you get to the book of Revelation, the whole thing culminates with a feast that we celebrate in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. It's a feast that never ends. Why is feasting so central to how we should understand God? Well, you have to understand feasting and eating in a biblical sense to really understand the significance of it. Eating and feasting in the Old Testament is way different, even in the New Testament for that matter, is way different than what it is for us today. Today, if you have a business deal that you're going to strike with someone else, you would call them and say, hey, I would like to propose a couple of things to you, and if you're good with it, maybe we can sign on the dotted line, and they'd be great. Uh, when do you want to get together? They'll be like, how's Wednesday for lunch? And you're like, perfect. Where do you want to meet? Oh, Charlie's. You know, low budget, low, low budget thing right there. But uh, so anyway, this is where you, you meet. So you would meet a complete stranger, wouldn't you? I mean, sometimes we do. We meet complete strangers, people we've never met in person before, and we'll meet them and sit down and have lunch with them. But let me just remind you, that's not so in the biblical world. Matter of fact, they didn't have restaurants that you could go to and sit down and have a meal with someone. The only way you were going to have a meal with someone was you were invited to their house or um, you invited them to your house. And that carried with it a certain connotation. It carried with it the idea, if you got to the point where you invited someone to your house to eat, there was a significance and expectation in that relationship. And the expectation was, I think you're the kind of person who would have my back, and I'm the kind of person that I promise you I'll have your back. And if everything goes well, then that begins a life of feasting together, either the individuals or the families. Do you remember the story in Genesis where God calls Abraham to sacrifice these animals and to split the parts, and, and, and Abraham goes into this trance? And then, well, we talked about that before, how that was not all that odd. It seems odd to us when we read it, but in the ancient world, that's the way people enter into covenants all the time. This was a common occurrence whenever you entered into a multi-generational covenant. Now, in other words, you were making a promise that even your children and your children's children were going to have to keep. Okay, this was coming. But what you don't see there, but I would assume it's probably true, is that every time we've ever seen that in the ancient world in other texts, there's always a feast that follows it. So after they walk through the pieces of the animal and they make this solemn oath that, hey, if I don't keep my side of this, may I end up like these animals? And they speak it out loud and then they walk out of the pieces, they immediately ratify that with a feast. They sit down and they eat and they're saying, I believe that you're going to be a person of your word and I've got your back and I believe you got my back. That's why meals in the Old Testament and the New Testament are way different than what we experience. Think about this for a moment. In the Old Testament, David, who had this trusted advisor who he thought had the wisdom of angels, like this is how much he trusted this guy. He said, this guy is so smart. And all of a sudden, this guy turns on him, and he goes and he follows Absalom, and he 
helps Absalom in his rebellion against David. And David, as he's writing about this in the Psalms, he writes about this individual and he says, how could you do such a thing? How could you turn on me like that? And his next words were, we broke bread together. You think about that, that carries that significance. Like there's almost like you sat across the table from me. You shared a meal with me and yet you turned on me. I don't think you have to be reminded of the Last Supper where as they're sharing a meal together, Jesus says, yeah, I've washed your feet, but you know, Peter's like, well, wash all of me. And, and he's like, Peter, you're being silly. Um, but he makes a statement. He says, you know, if you are pretty much clean, you've already taken a bath. The only thing you really need to wash is your feet because you've been walking all day long. He goes, but not all of you are clean. One of you here has said in your heart to betray me. And, and do you remember when the gospel says, who is it? Who is it? And he says, the one who dips in the same bowl I'm dipping in. Now, maybe you think of that as like this mysterious of Jesus is trying to mysteriously identify the person. I think it's much simpler than that and much more profound. He's saying, you won't believe it, but it is a guy who I've allowed to sit right next to me every time we've eaten. And matter of fact, he's sitting to me right now. And, and, and Judas says, Lord, is it I? And Jesus says, it's as you say. There is this profound feeling that when you've shared a meal with someone and they turn their back on you, there is this feeling of betrayal that is so central to that. Why? Because the sharing of the meal should have this profound sense of fellowship, of connection, of brotherhood, of family. And that's why this is so central to the Lord's Supper. It's why it's so central to the feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that concludes everything. And it's why it's very central to everything that we find in our passage here today. What we have in our, our, our passage here is this progression. What you find is an invitation followed by a sacrifice, followed by feasting, followed by the elements of a relationship. Those are the four things that we see as we go through this passage. Now, again, we're covering this whole chapter, so obviously we're not going to spend a lot of time parsing every verb, but we're going to get the gist of this, and we're going to see this beautiful picture unfold that fits what we celebrate today. Let's begin in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So here is God up here. Hey, come a little closer, but you're going to worship from afar. That's the way the whole thing starts. And the one thing that we understand is that God is inviting them. Look at verse 2. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So what do we see here in the first couple of verses? Here's what you see. Notice that the people who are mentioned here are all notorious sinners. Now, you may not notice that at first, but you remember Moses, right? He was the one that wasn't being obedient to the Lord from the very beginning when God called him. He was the guy who ended up in the wilderness because he murdered somebody. This is a guy who loves to take credit for the things that God does, and that ends up keeping him out of the promised land. That Moses was not a perfect person. Let's go to the next one. Aaron. Aaron, in just a few chapters, is going to lead Israel in idolatry. He's going to oversee the building of the golden calf, and he's going to oversee the worship of this golden calf. 
Nadab and Abihu, maybe those names don't sound familiar to you, but they are Aaron's children. Those are his two sons. These are going to be the first priest of Israel. Aaron, the first high priest, Nadab and Abihu are the first priest, and then so on in the family and the tribe of Levi. Well, you know, the priesthood is is uh, initialized in, I believe it's in Leviticus chapter 9, and in Leviticus chapter 10, Abihu and Nadab die. You know how they die? The fire comes out of the Holy of Holies and consumes them. Why? Because they were burning strange fire before the Lord. Because there was this censor that God had for them to create. And he said, I only want you to put a certain uh, types of spices and, and the things that are in there that will burn inside the censor. And God had prescribed to them a very specific formula that he wanted in there. And Nadab and Abihu, many scholars believe that they were drunk when they did this, that they had been drinking too much. And they were in there and kind of making a mockery of the whole thing. And all of a sudden, a fire comes out of the Holy of Holies and consumes them. And God looks at Aaron and says, and don't you dare mourn for their death. That's heavy. I mean, you think about it. He just lost his two sons and God looks at him and says, don't mourn for them. Why? Is it because God is so harsh and cold? No, it's because what Aaron represents. On the plate, that his, a part of his headdress says, holiness to the Lord. He represented the holiness of God. For him to mourn the loss of those two boys would say, well, God did something wrong. God was in the wrong. God is not just in this, but he was. Why? Because God takes his holiness very seriously. They had plenty of warning, and they knew that they shouldn't be doing these things, and they ventured into a territory where they received the judgment of God. The holiness of God is not something to be played around with. It's not something to take lightly. But at the same time, it's the only place, the presence of God, where we find our meaning and our identity. It's the only place where we find why we were created, the purpose that we were created for. And so there is this juxtaposition that we find ourselves in. The very scariest place, the most deadly place is to be in the presence of a holy God, and yet that's the only place we can find our meaning and our purpose and our value. How can we be made right to exist in the presence of God. Well, we find this right here. There's a fundamental truth that you have. Number one, any invitation you have to approach God is always on his terms, never on ours. Did you hear that? God invites us to come into his presence but he invites us on his terms, not on ours. It reminds me of a time I was growing up in a church, had this evangelist that came in and spoke, and he was talking about these experiences that he had. And I mean, they were fantastic experiences, just things that would blow your mind. And, and he talked about how so many people walk up to the very edge of becoming a Christian and then they turn away and they end up experiencing the wrath of God and the judgment of God instead of the life that was right before them. He gave this one example that always stood out to me. And it was this man who had come to church that night and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit was convicted about uh, a, an extramarital affair that he was having. And he came forward and he talked to the minister and he was repentant. And he said, I, I, I know I need Jesus. And he says, you've got to let go of this right now. You've 
you've got to accept Jesus. And he said, no, I can't do it right now. I've got to go and settle this. I've got to go back and make this right. And he says, no, you can't make anything right. You've got to accept him right here. And he says, I can't come to him like this. He goes, you have to come to him like this. And the guy became vocal and very argumentative. And he ends up like just telling him, listen, I'm going to do what I feel like I need to do. And the preacher said, he said, he looked at him and said, listen to me, if you walk away from this altar tonight, your life will be required of you. And the guy says, you can't say that. And he turned and he walked away and the guy died in a car wreck that night. Now I was blown away. I mean, I was like, I felt that, that, that conviction and that heaviness of God's holiness and God's righteousness. And you know what? You can only come to God on God's terms, not on your own. You can't go and fix your life and make things right. God wants you to come as you are, but you know what? The invitation is on his invitation, not when you decide. We must take serious the holiness of God. Look how it continues in verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, do y'all know how this story continues? Yeah. What I find fascinating about this is how fast they were willing to agree to these terms. Now, again, look at what it says. Moses read it all out loud. This is what is required of the Lord. This is what he said. Not just don't murder, don't steal. I've given you examples. This is what it means. Can y'all live up to this? Absolutely. So it continues as you go on a little further, Moses reads the whole thing again. And he's like, are you sure? Verse seven, yep, sure, absolutely, we will obey. It just shows you that they weren't giving consideration to what the purpose of God's law was really about. At this moment is where they should have reflected on their own life and their own journey from the time they were set free from Egypt and say, we didn't even make it far from the Red Sea before we were complaining. You know, here we are, and we're already challenging Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership, and it's not going to be long, and they're going to be worshiping a golden calf again. They should have taken stock and inventory and say, you know what? We are unable to keep this. And God would have said, that's exactly right. And you need to trust me to make you right. You need to trust me to bring righteousness to you because you can't bring it to me. And that's really how the rest of this unfolds. Look again at how it continues in verse four. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an, what does it say? An altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Why is that important? Well, go back to the 10 words that you find in Exodus 20. What's the very next thing that God gives to them? Instructions on how to build an altar. What do you need an altar for? For sacrifice. Why do you need a sacrifice? Because you don't meet the expectations of the 10 words. That's the only reason you would need one, right? Isn't it interesting that God gives them the 10 words and immediately says, and by the way, you're gonna need this because you're not gonna keep these 10 words. And then he says, here's what I expect of y'all. Do y'all think that y'all can keep it and be obedient? Yes, we do. Moses, go ahead and build that altar. <laughs> They're gonna need it. Why? Because we're not righteous. There's nothing in us that can will our way to be and meet the righteous expectation of God. 
And so immediately after they commit to, yeah, we'll do everything the Lord says, we will obey. Moses gets up and he builds an altar. Look at verse five. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Now, this is a ritual that we find oftentimes in scripture, the ritual of blood, the ritual of sacrifice. And you know what always follows is the ritual of feasting. Again, going back to Abraham, the example of him walking through those pieces, one thing that we know when they entered into that covenant, there was feasting. Whenever there was a covenant of marriage that happened, there was feasting. Whenever kings came together and made covenants, there was feasting afterwards. Why? Because feasting is so central to covenant making as well. Covenant has to do with a celebration and a party. Not this somberness. You know, if you don't have a picture of God as a God who is joyous and celebratory in the sense that he loves feasting and celebrations, then you don't understand God. You don't understand who he is. You don't understand his intentions towards you. The blood and the sacrifice is so that you could be made right so that you can come to the feast. God wants you there. He wants you to experience all the blessing of being in his presence and knowing him. He wants you to experience the celebration of eating until your heart's content. He wants you to experience the celebration of singing and hearing the instruments and having a joyous occasion with all the other people who are the people of God. He wants us to experience that kind of joy. Look how it continues in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What that tells us is they didn't understand. They thought it was their obedience that was going to bring them the right standing with God. And from the very beginning, God was saying, no, the only thing that's going to make you right is a blood sacrifice. The only way that you're going to be made tolerable to come into my presence and not die is through a blood sacrifice. The only way that you can get into the feast and enjoy the table of God, something's going to have to die. Something's going to have to shed its blood. And that blood's going to have to be applied to you. Now, this is something they should have already understood because go back just a few chapters and you got Passover, which we're celebrating right now, right? We're in the middle of Passover. If you came Mars Hill, we had our Passover here on this campus Friday night and on the other campus on Saturday night. This is something that we are aware of. We're in the middle of it. What is Passover about? If you believe that God is going to save you, you had to sacrifice a lamb. You had to take the blood and not just sacrifice, but you had to apply the blood to the doorposts of the house, to the only way, because back then, houses only had one entrance and one exit. So the blood was applied to the only way in, the only way out. Think about this for a moment. This is also a symbolism, what we find here in this passage, of the confirmation of the covenant of God. So in other words, all of it's spoken, 
they have agreed to it, but it's not ratified until blood has been applied. It's, it's like uh, almost like in a marriage um, sequence, like whenever p- two uh, individuals come together and they get married. So the husband and the wife, they come together and they've made these vows to one another like we see. They've declared their intentions. I intend for you to be the only focus of my life. I give up all my relationships and pursuits of other people. I want to pursue you only. I will be faithful to you and to you alone until death comes and separates us. That's the only thing that could separate us. All those things that we say that's a picture of this covenant that's being made between a bride and a groom okay then what happens at the end of that well at the end of the ceremony after they have exchanged vows and they've exchanged rings we have this little ceremony that most people do some people don't do it anymore but used to they always did it and that was the unity candle and that was where, you know, when the bride's mother came in, she lit one candle. When the groom's mother came in, she lit one candle. And then when they had exchanged their vows and their rings and the minister had pronounced that they had become husband and wife, they would come together and they would light that one candle in the middle and they would blow out the other two. So there was this symbolism of something that was coming together right there, okay? Uh, so other people use sand, sand from where one person is and sand from where the other, and they pour it into the same jar and the sand's mixed together. Some people use an ancient uh, salt ceremony where salt is taken, like Abraham would have done this, where they all carried salt on their tunic. And whenever they entered in a covenant with someone, they would take a pinch of salt out of theirs, and he would take a pinch of salt out of theirs, and they would exchange it, and they would say, just as I can't only remove the grains of salt from my pouch or yours that belong to me, so I cannot remove myself from this covenant that I've made with you. So people have these different ways of ratifying or solidifying the covenant. And then what happens immediately after that? a feast. It's very serious. It's very solemn. There's something that brings it to a conclusion. And then there is a feast. Now I want to remind you that we've had a marriage ceremony set up from the very beginning of Exodus all the way through. We've seen everything, the segula and all the different uh, sections of a Jewish wedding ceremony all the way down to the ketubah. The ketubah is the exchanging of vows. That was at Mount Sinai when the 10 words, and it starts off with, you can have no other gods before me, which means you can't have other lovers. This relationship has to be exclusive. I have to have your attention. You can't be out chasing all the other lovers out there, all the other false gods of the Canaanites. You have to give me your devotion or this relationship won't work. And then everything else is about how we were to relate to God. And then the last six of the 10 words were how we relate to each other because of our relationship with God. And then after that, how is it ratified? With a sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood, and then there's a celebration. Do you see the foreshadowing? God, when he calls us to be his bride, the bride of Christ, you know, the church, he calls us into this covenant. He says, I have to have your full devotion. There was a sacrifice, Jesus. The blood is applied to our hearts. And then there's a feast, the marriage feast of the lamb. It follows the same exact sequence. So what you see in the Old Testament comes to light in the New Testament. I always say this to people because in American churches especially, we love to study the New Testament. But I just want to tell you, the New Testament does not make sense without the Old Testament. Okay? It does, you don't understand. I'm going to even tell you this. The New Testament writers 
fully believed that the people they were writing to already understood the Old Testament, which is why they don't feel like they needed to explain a whole lot of things. They fully already believe that you understand that Abraham was made righteous by faith not by his works. They, they believe that you already know that story, that they know the story of the depravity of humanity, that you know the story of how someone is made right through blood. They believe that you understand Leviticus where it says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. They believe you understand that. So when they go into the gospel story, they just start telling the story. It's up to you to understand how it all fits back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what makes the New Testament make sense because everything that happens in the New Testament is foreshadowed in the Old. Now, let's come back to our passage here for a moment. Look at uh, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In other words, they were seeing the presence of God. They were seeing where he was standing and they were awed and amazed at the beauty and, the, and the, the just sheer impressiveness of seeing where God was. Look at verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. And then what's the next thing say? And they ate and drank. Now think about that for a moment. You get to the point where you see the presence of God. There he is. You see this road like sapphire that connects to his feet. And you're there. And of course, there's this feeling of intimidation. But yet somehow, that intimidation and that awe has to come down to a point that you feel comfortable to eat and drink. How can that happen? I'll tell you how it can happen. The application of blood which makes someone righteous before God because a substitute has paid the death and covered the sin of that individual. And now that person can walk up and feel at least somewhat confident to even eat and drink in the presence of God. And notice that it was God's desire that they come and eat and drink in his presence. He didn't even lay his hand on them they beheld, they ate, and they drank. What a miraculous thing that happens here. And look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Now, I just wanna point out something here that I think is very fascinating. You see there where it says, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. That is not what it says in the scripture, okay? This is a cop-out on the translators. I'll tell you exactly what it says. If you were to translate it from Hebrew into English, this is what it says, and this is why they didn't translate it this way. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, and when you get here, be here. That's what it really says. Now, the reason they translate it that way is because that doesn't sound right. That sounds really weird. It sounds repetitive. But let me just tell you something. As a man, that was very necessary. Because as a man, I can tell you that if I have navigated a mountain and I've had to climb up there and I get to the top of it, the first thought I have is, how am I going to get down? Okay? What God is saying here is he knows our human tendencies. He knows that we have this tendency to not be where we are. Some of you aren't here right now. Some of you are already thinking about what you're going to eat, where you're going to go, 
Some of you are dreading the in-laws that you're going to have to sit across from. I'm just kidding. In-laws. Um, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Your mind is already somewhere else. You're in a place with the people of God, hearing the word of God taught, and your mind is somewhere else. Listen, I just, I, I'll confess to you, this is me. This is where I live. My little daughter, she calls me daddy, daddy, daddy. Do you know why? Because she knows I'm not there till the third daddy. <laughs> she knows daddy doesn't work because I'm still staring off. She's like, daddy. And I'm like, what is it? Daddy. Oh, there you are. And somehow as it was so that way that she has learned that I'm not there. So now it's just daddy, daddy, daddy from the very beginning because she knows it takes three. And isn't that sad that I can be in a room with someone so precious to me and yet my mind be completely somewhere else. And I not give her this beautiful little girl that God has gifted me, not give her my full attention. But you know what's even more sad is that we do the same thing with God. We worship this God who's given his very best so that we could be made whole so that we could worship him, so that we could know him, so that we could come into his presence with thanksgiving. And when we come to a place to worship, we are anywhere but there. So God says to Moses, come up here and be here. I want you to enjoy what's happening here. I want you to enjoy this experience. I want you to take it in. I want you to enjoy the feasting. You know, some of us, we are so the Marthas and not the Marys. We are so about getting things ready and making sure everything's perfect and we're watching it the whole time. And before long, the whole event is over and all we have is dirty dishes to clean up. We didn't enjoy it. We didn't embrace it. We didn't feast. The saddest thing, I think, is to get to the end of your life and realize that you never feasted in the presence of God after all he did to invite you in. After all he did to invite you to understand him and to know him and to find your purpose in him and to find your identity and your value in him. Look how it continues in verse 13. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait there for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her with you, whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. The reason he says that is because he's going to be gone for a while. And he's just saying, hey, these people are in charge while I'm gone. Okay. Verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So he was gone for a while. And let me just tell you something. In Hebrew, now some of you are going to look at this and go, oh, you don't believe the word of God. I do. This is not what I'm saying. But in Hebrew, 40 days and 40 nights is sometimes a euphemism or it's, a, it's, it's used to say a long time. Okay. So in other words, it doesn't necessarily mean it was exactly 40 days and 40 nights. It's kind of like we say, man, I hadn't seen you in a minute. Do we really mean that I hadn't seen you in a minute? No, they mean I hadn't seen you in a long time, which is weird, right? But we know what that means. Or, man, it seems like it's been an eternity since we've gotten together. 
Do we really mean it's an eternity? No, but what we mean is it's a really long time. So 40 days and 40 nights often means a long time. And so literally what this means is that Moses spent this incredible time with the Lord on the mountain. And you know what? The temptation was that he was not going to fully be there. But God invited him up there and said, Moses, when you get up here, I want you to get the fullness of this experience. I want you to be here. I want you to take this this whole thing in. I want you to rest for six days and just feast. And then you're going to hear me speak to you from that cloud. And I'm going to tell you all these things that there's no way you would have ever known. And I'm going to reveal those things to you. And I'm going to let you see a little bit more about who I am and what my character is. And it's going to grow your faith. And you're going to be able to get these people through this wilderness. And you're going to fulfill what you were born for, what your destiny is, because you know who I am. I am. And you know what? That's what he invites all of us to do. He invites you every day to come up. Do you know why? Because as Moses goes up as this intermediary for Israel, Jesus came down. Jesus came down and he lived a life showing us what God was really like. And then when it came time, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He paid the full penalty because he was put into the grave. He died. And then what we celebrate today was that three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. There was this incredible excitement. There was this people who saw him, people who didn't, people who heard that he was alive. And then all of a sudden, this one guy who had just blown it, his name is Peter, I mean, he had just blown it. He had denied that he even knew Jesus. Surely Jesus was done with him. And he was out on a boat. And they saw somebody on the shore. And you know what that person was doing? Cooking food. Caught anything? Uh, not really a whole lot. One guy listened and said, that sounds like Jesus. Jesus, is that you? Yeah. Come on, I'm cooking some food. Come eat. Peter jumps out of the boat, and he's like swimming, 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 swimming. And he gets up there, and the scripture in John is very specific. It says, as he got up to where Jesus was, Jesus was cooking fish on a charcoal fire. Why is that important? Because if you go back to in John where, where Peter denies Jesus, it says he was standing around a charcoal fire when he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus brought him back to that same place and says, listen, I know that you're a sinner. I know that you've messed up. And I want you to know I paid the price so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be made whole. I've already paid that price. And listen to me, Peter. Not only have you been made whole, you are actually usable. I'm going to use you to build my kingdom. Yeah, you that denied me three times. You that can't keep your act together. You that opens your mouth way too much and lets too much come out of it before you ever think. You, I'm going to use you to build my kingdom and spread my church throughout the world. And you know what? Before that happens why don't we sit down and eat a little bit and feast? 
and feast they did. And that's why it became central to the human experience, central to the church experience, central to the Christian experience. When we sit down and we share bread with one another, Jesus says, as often as you do this, remember me. Whenever we share the Lord's Supper, this is my body and this is my blood. As often as you do this, remember me. When the New Testament church began to grow, you know what they were accused of doing all the time? Having these love feasts where they would get together and just eat until all hours of the night and they would just keep talking about the body and the blood of Jesus and how it made them whole. And they said, bunch of cannibals is what they are. No, they were people that got it. They understood they were made whole by a sacrifice and that sacrifice invited them to feast. My question to you is this, how many of you today are starving spiritually? Because you're not feasting with God. And he's done everything to open the door and make that way open for you so that you can come in and know him. And you are everywhere but in his presence, trying to find yourself out there, trying to find identity and meaning and purpose in something other than what you were created to find it in. Let this passage wash over your soul. Let it bless you in the name of Jesus. Let it remind you that Easter, that the resurrection, that the empty tomb is God saying to you, I so want you to come up on this mountain and spend time with me. I wanted it so bad that I came down off this mountain and made it possible for you. Won't you come in? In Revelation, before you ever have the picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb, there's this very famous passage. And it's Jesus speaking. And he says this. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in. And I will, what? Eat. Feast with him. And he with me. God wants you to feast spiritually, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in right now. God says, I already knew you weren't perfect. I already knew that you were a sinner. Now, do you want to live in that? Are you ready to come in and feast? Have the blood of Christ applied to your hearts. Amen? Let's pray. With everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to say this one thing to you today. Where are you in your relationship with God? Where is your mind and your heart right now? Is it divided amongst so many allegiances in this world? Or are you single-minded, understanding that day-to-day, the focus that you need is to focus on the God that created you and has your destiny in his hand? And let him take care of those things that are happening around. You focus on who he is. He's more than enough. He is your portion forever. If you are here today and you don't know for certain that Jesus Christ is the Savior of your life, I want to make sure that you don't leave this place today without talking to someone. I'll be around, standing around. Other ministers are here. You can grab one of us. You can grab a person that you came with. I promise you, if there's someone with you, they can help you to understand. They can help you to find that way. So, like that old preacher said to that man, don't leave this place. It's on you. Don't leave this place today. If you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at you, 
Do business with him before you leave this place. There's nothing so important out there that it's worth eternity. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I just pray that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word. Thank you for a passage that reminds us the importance of sacrifice and the importance of feasting. But feasting can never come until there's a sacrifice, until there is blood that has been shed. And we thank you, Jesus, on this resurrection day that we celebrate a sacrifice and the defeat of death, hell, and the grave so that we can be made whole. But that wholeness is not automatic. We can only come to you on your terms. And your terms are that we have to commit ourselves fully to the relationship through Christ. God, I pray that today we would be very aware and I pray today that you would set free some captives so that they may know wholeness and that they may know forgiveness and that they may know feasting. And we ask all of this in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.